The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We are going to continue in our study of attributes, characteristics of a godly man according to the Bible. So as you're getting your stuff ready, there is an outline on the back. We'll try to cover five more of these. Kind of an overview-like fashion. We dealt with four last week. For those of you who haven't been with us, this will be our third and final week on characteristics of a godly man according to the Bible. So let's go ahead and look at this. Uh, the godly man, part three, selected scriptures. And just by way of review, we've covered four of those. Uh, our theme verse, 1 Corinthians sixteen thirteen, where Paul ends that letter to the Corinthians, talking to Christian man, and he just gives that imperative and says, act like men. And we've been defining what it means to act like a biblical man or a godly man for now three weeks. Act like a man, act like a godly man, act like a Christ-like man. Act like a, a biblical man. And we need to hear this more than ever as we have confusion in our culture, in our country, in our world about what a man is to be, what a man is to do, and the priorities of being a man. We even saw that this week with another unfortunate Supreme Court ruling that undermines biblical truth to the core on what something so basic, even the definition of marriage, is that God established 6,000 years ago in writing in Genesis chapter 2. So it's very clear to the believer what that is. So we can't be confused. The world will try to confuse us. Satan and his demons will try to confuse us. Hence the clarity of Scripture in these short, basic, simple commands. If you're a Christian and you're male, act like a man. And so the last four weeks we talked about uh, that a godly man takes initiative. That's seen all over Scripture in relationships, in calling the girl and asking her for a date, not waiting for her to ask you out on a date, you sissy. Uh, the woman, op- uh, the man opens the door on and on. So we already looked at that. So a godly man takes initiative. A godly man works hard, and he's not afraid of hard work. It's his very identity, really. And it's fulfilling if you're a man to be a hard worker. Satisfying. So he takes initiative, works hard. Uh, the godly man is decisive. And his decisions are based on truth, is what I said last week. We talked about all the other ways people make decisions or they're flaky about decisions or unclear and indecisive and impediments to that. But it's making decisions based on God's truth makes it so much easier. So the godly man takes initiative, works hard, is decisive. And in the last one we covered, uh, the man of God or the godly man has a well-ordered life. Uh, out of First Timothy 3, cosmos was the word well-ordered in all areas of life, not with perfection, but that's the direction that he aspires to and desires. And so now let's go ahead and look at these last five that I've chosen, five more characteristics of a godly man or a biblically obedient man. By the way, like I said last week, I, I have nine here. That's not a magical number. I did a retreat where there were like 16. Um, what I'm trying to emphasize here are priorities of the characteristics of a man in the Bible that are basic priorities, while at the same time, common basic priorities that are neglected by men all over the church. So these are basic priorities, but they are routinely neglected, not taught on, or where men typically struggle in the most fundamental areas of their life as a male. So that's why I chose the ones that I did. There's about 132 things godly men should be doing. But these nine in particular represent distinct roles for males and especially where they struggle, where I would struggle. 
that's how I selected these nine. And we, and so that's just a practical explanation of wondering why we have what we have. So let's go on to the next one. And one through five today. The godly man is bold and courageous. The godly man is bold and courageous. Uh, I did pull this one in particular out of Deuteronomy 31, 6, but it's also, this same command is in the book of Numbers. It's also in the book of Joshua. It's also in the book of Proverbs. It's also in the book of Psalms and in several books throughout the Bible and even in the New Testament. Ephesians in particular. So this is a common command that God gives uh, to his people and he gives it in a specific way to males who profess to be believers. The one in Deuteronomy uh, 31.6 is the time of Moses, the end of his life. He's 120. He's about to die. He addresses two million Jews on behalf of God as a prophet. And he gives this basic command. Of all the things that he could leave them with, this is one of the most basic commands. And he's got about a million men listening in his midst. And one thing that he wants them to remember, one of the last things that Moses says is this in Deuteronomy 31. Be strong and of good courage. Be strong and of good courage. He's not talking about physically strong either. He's talking about being spiritually strong. Spiritually strong in your faith, what you believe, your relationship with God, how you view his world, how you conduct yourself in the world. So he's speaking of strength that is spiritual, on a spiritual plane. Be spiritually strong and of good courage. And literally, in the words of Paul, it's be strong in the Lord. Because why? We don't have strength in and of ourselves, do we? The flesh is weak. We have great desires. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We can't be strong in and of ourselves. That's why this has to be spiritual strength. So be strong in the Lord in your relationship with Him, putting Him first, making Christ the center of your life. Your, your only strength is in Him, in the indwelling spirit, in the truth of the Bible, the prayers of the saints. This is what makes a man strong. And this is a command. This is not an option. If you are a male and you're a Christian, you're a believer, you are obligated to pursue being strong, spiritually speaking, and courageous, spiritually speaking. So it's a choice. It's volition. We're accountable for the decisions that we make where we are either going to be strong and courageous or what's the opposite? Being a spiritual coward. That's the opposite. Being a spiritual coward. Cowering, caving in the face of controversy regarding something and stiff-arming or neglecting or forgetting about or sidestepping or compromising the truth in that difficult situation. So really there are only two options for the Christian man. Be strong and courageous in your faith in the Lord regarding truth or be a coward, be a spiritual coward. And that's manifest in many different ways. And we, we need more and more stronger and more courageous men in the church, don't we? There, there's a crisis and a, a huge lack and void of Men who are leaders in their homes, men who are leaders in their marriages, men who are leaders in their church, men who are leaders as a result in their country where they live as citizens. A huge word, and this is where it starts, is being strong in your relationship with the Lord and be of good courage, and that means you have faith in Christ. He is the source of your strength. It's not in yourself. So this is spiritually speaking. The opposite of this, I said, was cowardice. And another way to say the opposite, what is the opposite of being Strong and courageous in the Lord. It is fearing man, which is also throughout Scripture. And it is all over the place in the book of Proverbs. And it says, don't fear man. And we do it all the time. We're tempted with it 
all the time. We call it by many different things. We call it peer pressure for teenagers. Fearing the opinion of other people, your co-workers, your boss. Boy, if I do this righteous thing, if I do this ethical thing, they might look down on me. I might lose my job. They might talk bad about me. There are so many areas where the Christian is confronted with that of the fear of man. If I stand up for this issue, I will come across as not politically correct and I'll come across as a homophobe. And I'm speaking about the decision that was made this week in the Supreme Court where five people decided that God's definition of a marriage was unconstitutional. Amazing, isn't it? And so many Christians might be tempted out of the fear of man, the fear of repercussions, the fear of whatever, rejection or people labeling you or stigmatizing you, that you won't stand up for truth. And you'll have a fear to stand up for a biblical definition of marriage that just comes right out of the Bible. This is not a political issue. This is a biblical issue. It's a theological issue. It's a spiritual issue. God created marriage. He defined marriage. He defends marriage. He's defending it tenaciously with a vengeance. For biblical marriage reflects the eternal relationship of Jesus Christ, the husband with his bride, the church. So you can be put at ease, Christian, regarding God's definition of marriage. He's protecting it and is more jealous of it than any Christian is. And he will defend it. He will preserve it. But the point being, Christians need to be willing to stand up for the truth in the face of opposition. And uh, so there are so many different areas. I think about one common area of not standing up and being strong as a man is in churches, in church leadership. I, I hear about it. I talk to friends who are pastors who hear about it or have to interact and deal with it. I have, I have, the, I have the experience of working in churches or working with uh, ministers and men who, in my opinion, at times were not bold and courageous just over basic things like biblical truth. For example... Today, the members here at GBF, we have an announcement to our members about a Matthew 18 discipline issue. That is right in the Bible. That should be normative for a healthy church. I know plenty of churches and plenty of pastors. It's routine. But I also know plenty of pastors and churches that don't do Matthew 18 because of a lack of spiritual courage. Oh, I don't care if it's in Matthew 18 and I don't care if it says verse 17. We don't do that at our church because it's too controversial. It's too upsetting. Or we sidestep it. Don't follow through. Well, can't they just leave the church and be everybody be happy? No. Jesus knows what's best for his church. And following through with due diligence, honoring Christ is a step of faith, but it also takes spiritual strength and courage to do it. Because many times as a Christian, when you make the right decision based on truth, you will face opposition. People will resist you. They'll talk about you. And then you've got to battle with the fear of man. Whose opinion matters more? What God thinks of you and Christ thinks of you is his child or friends and family members around you. Another common example would be you're in a family and maybe one of your family members asks you to get involved in some financially compromised deal. And they just say, oh, it's just a little deal. Here, partner with us, sign here, whatever. And they're asking you to compromise your ethical integrity on a small scale. And you can't violate your conscience and you say no. And all of a sudden you've got immediate family members mad at you. And to preserve the peace, many times some people, they'll just cave. Oh, okay, I'll compromise here. Or we do it at work, same thing. Asking us to compromise our integrity. So it takes spiritual boldness and courage to stand up for God's truth, to resist the onslaught of Satan's temptations and also the fear 
of man. And only, only God can help us through that. But this should be typical of a man who's growing to be strong in the Lord, standing boldly, courageously, faithfully on the truth of God, regardless of the opposition. So the godly man is bold and courageous because of his love for Christ and truth. Number two, the godly man welcomes accountability. Uh, the godly man welcomes accountability. Uh, the godly man welcomes people into his life to be a wee bit intrusive in his life, sometimes uh, a wee bit annoying. Oh, you're sticking your nose a little too far in my business. Um, well, that's not always a bad thing because we all need accountability. We all need accountability. Um, I think of in Genesis chapter 2, before sin entered the world, before Satan did his dirty deed, before God cursed the earth, Adam was alone, and it says that it is not good for the man to be alone. Isn't that amazing? That is before sin. How much more does a man or a human being need another human being in their life after sin, in light of our fallenness, our finiteness, the fallenness of the world and sin and temptation, and Satan who's on the attack? Uh, we need accountability. We need people in our life. We were made in God's image, and God is a social being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Human beings were created to be in relationship with other people. And that's why God created Adam and Eve together. And when they came together with that high level of intimacy and accountability, God said they are one. So every human being needs deep accountability in their life from other people. This is what we call discipleship in the church. A discipleship relationship is allowing somebody to get into your life, to be a part of your life in every area of your life to certain degrees and providing encouragement, but also accountability in your life. We can't live without it. We can't grow without it. We will go off course. Prone to wander, says the great hymn. We are in and of ourselves. We are prone to wander. We need a leash. We need a collar around our neck and we need a good friend holding on to that leash. Otherwise, we will wander and stray. So we need accountability. Just some key verses. I already said Genesis 2. I think it's 18. Not good for any person to be alone, live alone. We all need accountability. Uh, Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, so one woman sharpens another, so one Christian sharpens another. Another proverb in the book of Proverbs says, He who, get this, he who isolates himself is a fool. He who isolates himself is stupid. That's what it means. He who isolates himself and always wants to be by himself all the time is in for trouble. That's what that means. Because it's not good to be alone. We are weak. Another great verse, Jesus said it, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How many of us here are the king or queen of good intentions? I am. I wanted to do that. I tried to do that. I wish I did that. It sounds like Paul in Romans chapter 7. We need accountability to help us follow through. Maybe as we were going through some of these, and maybe you were convicted by some of these. Uh, you know, the man of God takes initiative, works hard, decisive, a well-ordered life, and then you thought about your messy room and were a little convicted or pierced to the heart. Well, we need accountability in all areas. So my question to you is, Christian, uh, who do you have in your life? Who do you have intruding in your life, holding you accountable? If you're married, the answer, the first answer should be your spouse. That's by God's design. But if you're a Christian, then you should have other people in your life at different levels because that's why we have about 30 plus commands in the New Testament of all these one another's. 
encourage one another, rebuke one another, confess your sins to one another, forgive one another, bear one another's burdens, love one another, admonish one another. You can't do the one another's on a one-to-one level unless you know that person, which means you have a relationship and a rapport and a trust with that person. So you have to know people and be in relationship with people. Absolutely a priority. So don't isolate yourself. And who do you have in your life holding you accountable? And also, at what level? Are there people in your life that really know what you're all about and what makes you tick and what your weaknesses are and what your strengths are? Or are you guarding these relationships and keeping them kind of at a distance? Because you want to protect some secret area of sin in your life. That's human nature. We would all be prone to do that. So that's a dangerous thing. But we need that human accountability, and that is by God's design. And that's why when we go to heaven, when we get to heaven, we're a part of a spiritual family, a corporate mass of people. That's what heaven is. It's not you get to be by yourself, locked up in your own room with your video game for the rest of eternity, all by yourself, drinking Sprite or whatever it is. It's you have to, Some of you don't like this idea, but for eternity, you have to be with other people for all eternity. That is by God's design. That is a good thing. And if you don't like it here on earth, if you get to heaven, you will like it in heaven. It'll be a time of rejoicing and celebration. So that's the big challenge for us, uh, examining our lives continually to see what kind of accountability we have in all areas of our life and do I have any secret spots that I don't want exposed. Usually those dark secret spots that you don't want to expose, they usually catch up with you in, in life. As God said in the Old Testament, be sure your sin will find you out. It'll hunt you down and you will be exposed. I think of... A public scene that happened. I'll never forget it. When I was in seminary, it was my first year of seminary. I'm sitting in a class, a lecture with about 50 other men training to be pastors. In the middle of the lecture, about four or five police bolt through the seminary classroom door in the middle of the lecture, and they're coming towards me, and I'm like, uh-oh, I think I paid my parking ticket. Whoop! They went by me, and they went over to one of the seminary students that was a freshman and arrested him on the spot, pulled him out, and he ended up in jail. And it was like, wow. But the the point was is that he had a secret area in his life that he had been catering and nurturing, grew up in a Christian home and everything, and it was a it was public exposure. Frightening. But a reality and a good lesson uh, that we are all vulnerable. So the godly man welcomes accountability into his life. And if you don't have anybody in your life at a deep level, you just... You know where you begin? You just begin by asking God, God, send somebody I can trust into my life to hold me accountable. God, I need your help. Send them my way. We're going to talk a little bit more about accountability in a second. Number three, the godly man is teachable. Um, Again, I chose these because I was thinking about, number one, what it's like to be a man. Number two, what it's like to shepherd men and counsel men and see common problems. And so these are all very specifically chosen. So... I chose accountability because a lot of men don't like accountability. A lot of Christian men don't have accountability. And this cuts to the nature of uh, what makes a man a man, uh, a macho man. I can do it. I'm, I've got, I believe in uh, individualism, rugged individualism. I believe in independence. I can do this myself. I can shoulder this myself. I don't need anybody's help. That's why men fall prey to this. This is an issue really of pride. Hence the need for many Christian men to have accountability in their life. And this is also true on number three. The godly man is teachable. I think one area of weakness for men is pride. Being a know-it-all. I don't need anybody's help. Or I've been doing this for 32 years. 
I'm an old dog and I don't learn new tricks. I don't welcome new tricks. Men, males struggle in this area. So that's why I put it, the godly man is teachable. A virtue that is a prerequisite for being teachable is being a humble person. Being a humble person, welcoming somebody speaking into your life, welcoming somebody speaking into your life, correcting you, pointing out that you don't have all the information, or maybe pointing out that while you're thinking on that is wrong and it needs to be amended. These are, wow, those are highly confrontational, aren't they? And threats to my manhood. And that's how men can react at times. So pride really is the issue. So being a a godly man is somebody who is teachable, welcomes new information, welcomes challenging information, is open to the idea that maybe they're wrong and they need to amend and change their position. And they're not digging their roots down, unflappable, unwilling to change even in the face of truth. So this is a common problem. So think about yourself. Are you teachable men and young men? Your parents tell you something. I know, Mom. I know, Dad. I know, I know, I know. So get used to that phrase. I know, I know, I know. If you're repeating that a lot, that means you're not teachable. I know, I know, I know. That means you're full of pride. I know, I know, I know. That's just one sign. So a godly man is teachable and he welcomes input from other people and sometimes this takes the form of counsel from other believers. Hence I put Proverbs 15.22, a great verse, without consultation, without input from other people, without teaching and instruction from other people. If you just want to be a loner and do it yourself and you don't get people's input, without consultation from other people, plans are frustrated. You're going to fall flat on your face. But with many counselors, with a lot of input, so this assumes you have a teachable spirit, you're welcoming the information from other people. Actually, God's going to bless that attitude. You will succeed. You would think that everybody would want success. You would think that all believing males want success. If they do, then they would be teachable. And again, it's hard to evaluate ourselves sometimes. So where do you start? You ask God, God, search me, know me, expose my faults, expose faults I'm not even aware of. God, if I am prideful, expose that. If I am not teachable, humble me, soften soften me and expose that as well. And sometimes God answers that prayer and he answers it very specifically through the words of another believer. Or maybe it's somebody in your life who knows you and you don't like what they're saying and God's answering your prayer. So we have to be discerning and attentive to that very thing. So the man of God needs to be teachable. Let's go on to number four. The godly man pursues moral purity. The godly man pursues moral purity. Note very carefully that I did not say the godly man is morally pure. Now, the the man of God should be morally pure. But if I just categorically said the godly man is morally pure instead of saying pursues moral purity, there's a huge difference there. And if it was just the godly man pursues moral purity, that would probably disqualify a lot of men, if not the majority of men in the church at any given day. And if you're alarmed by that, then you don't know some very fundamental and specific things about human beings, sin, anthropology, and males in particular. But the godly man pursues moral purity. It is a lifelong quest. It's an ongoing walk. It's the pilgrim's walk. It is not a foot race. It's not a hundred-yard dash. It is a marathon that takes a lifetime. And it's not the perfection of your life, morally speaking. It is the direction of your life, morally speaking. So, ladies, if you are married... 
and have a hubby. You need to pay attention and know this. Moms, if you have boys, you need to be aware of this. Hopefully you're not ignorant or naive or in denial. Young men or boys, this is you as you're growing up. You need to be aware of this. Pursuing moral purity. What I mean by that is moral holiness, physical holiness, sexual purity. Pursuing it. It is your greatest desire. It's what, what you know pleases God. And the reason you're pursuing it is because it is hard to pursue as a sinner, as a male. Here's a trick trivia question I thought of this week. Who is more, and you don't, don't answer out loud, please. Who is more hormonal? Males or females? I bet you, it's just a hunch, that most people would say women. And then I would say, ah, wrong answer. I would say it is males and females equally. Absolutely. Uh, I know this because I am a male. I know this because I am a dad of males. I know this because I've been counseling males for 20 years. I know this because I have uh, many male friends. Males are just as hormonal as women. And, but the problem, it's just different hormones and it's affecting their personality and their life in different ways. Uh, when it comes to men and young men, the hormones have to do with physical desire and because of sin, then it turns into lust, illegitimate lusts. And there's a spiritual reality to it and there's also a physical and biological reality that contributes to it as well. So this is one of the greatest challenges that young men, and as they grow older, it'll be the, one of the greatest challenges to their life, all of their days until Jesus comes. It's just a reality. And we've got to wake up and deal with it realistically. For, go ahead. I want you to turn to First Thessalonians chapter 4. We don't have... I mean, we could do a five-week series on this, actually, um, because it is so important. It is so neglected. We don't talk about it. Oh, it's embarrassing. Oh, it's... Not that big of a deal. No, it's not really that much of a problem. Well, yeah, it is. So Scripture deals with it. In 1 Thessalonians, I think in 1 Corinthians 7, if we had time, we'd read that. But just quickly, on pursuing moral purity, if you're a man, here's what God wants us to do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 3. For this is the will of God for you. This is the will of God for you, young men. This is the will of God for you, junior high men. This is the will of God for you, high school boys. This is the will of God for you men that are in college. This is the will of God for you men that are young and you just got married. This is the will of God for you men who are married in any age. This is God's will for you. This is what God wants you to do. Concentrate on focus and make a priority. What is that? Your sanctification, your holiness, your physical moral purity. That is the will of God. If you're falling short, then you're not, pers- or you're not in sanctification. You're not, you're having a problem with sanctification and holiness, but this is God's will for you. It's His desire for you. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. And then he explains it. Well, what do you mean, Paul? Well, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. And the word is porneia. It's a general word for all kinds of physical, moral, sexual impurity. Abstain from it. Stay away from it. Don't go near it. Uh, close your eyes to it. And then here, we got a problem in our culture, and we have for a long time. It's plastered all over the place. It's on the Internet. It's in the advertisements of the sports page. It's on television. It's on every commercial. It's on all the TV shows that we like to watch and all the movies. It's in the mall. It's a 40-foot painting on the local mall of Victoria's Secret of some lady. It's, it's everywhere. It's on billboards out on the street of 
this exposure of immorality, tantalizing men where they are weak and vulnerable. That is a design of Satan. But it's a reality. And so Paul's saying, abstain from it. Man, you've got to guard yourself against it. And you can't do it on your own. You need accountability. You need help. You will fail, you will fail if you try to do this on your own. You will not succeed if you battle in this area. Unless you have, the rare exception is if you have the gift of singleness. That is very, 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 very rare. I think I've met two guys in my life in 25 years of being a Christian who had the legitimate gift of singleness. Every other guy, psh, I know what you're talking about. Abstain from sexual immorality in order that you should know how, and how do you do that? Well, you need to know how to possess your body, control your body. Controlling it in sanctification and honor, not like the Gentiles, not like unbelievers. You have got to have parameters and guidelines in your life that set you apart and separates you and buffers and protects you from falling into this sin. And if you aren't communicating with somebody, and if you're married, it's got to be your spouse. It starts there. It starts with your wife. She is the secret to overcoming this in your life. And she's got to be informed and she's got to know. And you've got to be willing to be honest to talk as husband and wife. So you've got to, and if you're parenting young men, you've got to sit down and be honest and have that talk and talk about parameters and guidelines and things they need to refrain from that are dangerous and sometimes they don't even know what that is. Because about 12, 13, those hormones kick in and they're already, they were born a sinner. So the rest of life, it's a battle. It is a battle. That's why we're pursuing it. No one, no one has arrived. We're pursuing it. And when we blow it, we confess our sin and God who's faithful and righteous he forgives our sin. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise of God. And we keep getting bathed in the good news of the gospel of, and the blood of Jesus as we ask Him to help us grow. One more verse I want to look at related to this issue, and that's 1 Corinthians 7. So go ahead and look at it. If you're married, every husband and wife should have this passage memorized. Every wife should have it memorized. Every wife should have these passage in verse 1 in the forefront of her mind regarding her marriage. There is much that goes on that many wives don't know about out of total, utter ignorance in their marriage and in the life of their husband. And it goes by for years and years and years and years, and they are naive, and then they're wondering why, wow, how come I have problems in my marriage? How come we aren't close? How come we don't have intimacy? How come we don't have trust? How come we're not fulfilled? It's their ignorance about this reality. First Corinthians 7, this is God's answer to the problem, starting at verse 2. Uh, nevertheless... Here's the key phrase that you need to understand to understand this passage. Because of sexual immorality. Literally, you know what it means? To prevent sexual immorality. Here's what you need to do. And again, the word is porneia. That's just the umbrella term for all kinds of sexual uh, wrong behavior outside of marriage. Whether it's the thought life, actions, the internet, doesn't matter. It's all under that umbrella. Marital infidelity homosexuality, everything falls under that umbrella. To prevent that, Paul, Paul's giving us the answer, to prevent sexual compromise in your life, do the following. Well, what is it? Well, it just talks about a husband and wife fulfilling each other physically in a regular, ongoing, continual, mutually satisfying way. It goes both directions. doesn't matter if you don't feel like it. It's God's Design satisfying each other at the deepest level is God's solution to this problem. 
marriage. So if you're single and you're 25 and you're a guy and you have a burning desire to get married, you need to get married. That's what Paul says in this passage. Get married. Ask, pray for a spouse. That God would bring the perfect woman into your life. It's a command that he gives later in this passage. So these two passages will be very helpful. If you're a mom and you're a dad, these are things you can bring to your young boys or men you know, young men you know. If you're a young man, you should be meditating in these passages, seeking help, seeking accountability. Um, Like I said, I could go on and on. But the godly man pursues moral purity. Again, it's not the perfection of your life. It's the direction of your life. You need accountability. You need somebody helping you. And if you're a Christian, the good news is you can keep going to Jesus Christ, thanking him that he died for your sins. And he is extending forgiveness to you over and over and over and over again. That is the goodness of God. That is the gospel of Christ. That is the grace of God that we live in as Christians and and praise God for. Let's go on to the last one. And that is the godly man loves Christ. And we'll close with Matthew 22, 37. Go ahead and look at it. You know, I think of Proverbs 31 where it delineates all those godly virtues and characteristics of the godly woman. But the crescendo, it it closes with that great uh, highlight of what is the greatest desire and devotion of that woman. What is her greatest characteristic and attribute is that she fears the Lord. And the same is true of a godly man. All these characteristics are true. We should be pursuing these and working on these, but none of it means anything. And you're not going to make any headway in any of these if this last one, number five, is not the priority in your life. That First and foremost, you love Christ. You love Christ more than you love your family. You love Jesus Christ and the truth more than you love your spouse, more than you love uh, your favorite entertainment, more than you love your favorite material possession. And that's what... Jesus says, let's go ahead and look at it. Matthew 22, starting at verse 37. Um, What is the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus said in verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God. Love God. Love Christ. Love the Father. Love the Spirit. Love His truth. And you do it with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, says another passage, and with all your mind. Those four Jesus uses to say, in every area of your life, Jesus reigns supreme. Is that true of you, man of God? Because it should be. Jesus reigns supreme in all of my, in all of my life. My entertainment life, my sports life, my school life, my relationships, my free time, my entertainment, my church life, my ministry, my priorities, my money. It's the balanced Christian life of making Christ first in everything like on the back of our t-shirts, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God in love for Christ. If you love somebody, one of the main prior So how do I do that? What does that look like? Loving Christ. Well, think about humans you love. How do you cultivate your relationship with that person? Well, primarily through good communication. So if you're married... Good communication is necessary. You have a crush on somebody, good communication is necessary. You're engaged, good communication is necessary. And communication goes both ways. How you talk and communicate and how you listen. So it's it's two ways. That's how you cultivate and develop a love relationship. It's communication. So if you're a Christian, the way you do that with God, it's pretty basic. We talk to Him. We communicate to the Father. We communicate to Jesus in a regular, ongoing way. Our love for Him. We do that through prayer, right? So you've got to have a a vital prayer relationship that's ongoing to truly love Christ. And I would say be affectionate in your prayers. God, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Do you talk affectionately 
with the Father and Jesus. It's okay to be manly and still talk affectionately like that to the Father and to Jesus because you love Him and then you allow the Father to speak to you. How do we do that? Primarily, it's through listening to His Word, taking in His Word, reading His Word, meditating on His Word, prayerfully reflecting on what we heard about His Word, asking Him to apply it to our heart. That cultivates, builds, deepens relationship and communion in terms of your love for Christ. So how do we love Christ? It starts with communicating with Him in those two ways. And also, Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Obey. Obey. So that is a sign, that is an example, that's one of the most practical ways to show love for Christ is obeying His Word, obeying His law, and then what that means for us is obeying Scripture. Love for Christ. So uh, that is a great challenge for us men and you men in the church, if you've been challenged by these basic truths or convicted Uh, That's a good thing because the Word of God is living and active. And it's working on our heart. It's working on our conscience. But if you know Christ, we have freedom in Christ, don't we? That's the good news. And He promises to help us grow. Give us the Holy Spirit. Uh, If you need counsel, encouragement, talk to a brother. Get someone in your life who's going to help you grow. If you're a mommy or a spouse, uh, a wife, keep these things in mind regarding your sons, regarding your husband, of how God can use you to minister to and fulfill your man of God in your life so that he can be everything Christ wants him to be. He can't do it alone. He needs you. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit GBF sv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.